Everybody have a set of notes? Anybody need? We're going to be picking up on page 7 in those notes, page 7. Let me uh, make some announcements. For those of you in community groups, and if you're not part of a community group, I encourage you to be part of one, and you can send the keyword CBC Connect. You can text that to 97,000, and then you can get information about how to become part of a community group. But those meet tonight. I know the Lions are playing at 3. My community group starts at 5, so that'll be around halftime. Yeah, so, you know, we'll just check the scores every now and then uh, while our community group is going on. Some of you are in groups that start at 6, so you'll be closer to the end of the game. Lions are going to beat Tampa Bay, by the way, today. And then they will be in the NFC Championship, one of four, only four teams left. If they win today, there's only four teams left going into the next weekend. NFC Championship. And they have to go into San Francisco. But San Francisco almost lost to Green Bay yesterday. And we beat Green Bay. So by the transitive property, we're going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> no, we'll see. That's right. Go Lions. This uh, Wednesday is Jonathan Lehman is going to be here. And that is at 6 o'clock. It's going to be 6 to 7.30. And you see the subject that he's going to be addressing I don't know if any of you were able to hear him on uh, Bob Duco for about 20, 25 minutes this past Wednesday on the radio, but I heard it. It's a good interview, and three times they mentioned on there that he's going to be at Community Bible Church uh, that following Wednesday, this Wednesday now, 6 o'clock. Uh, we will have child care for that, and in fact, our uh, Pioneer Club for elementary age kids will be going, uh, and uh, junior high will be meeting. Senior high, though, will meet in here with us, so senior high and up. We'll be in the auditorium for, uh, for Jonathan. So I encourage you to be here. I hope that he can say some things that will give us a biblical perspective on especially the coming year and an election year so that we don't have to uh, get distracted, as can easily happen. And we want to maintain our focus on the Lord's work that he's called us together to do and not get distracted by what the politicians and the culture warriors are, are doing. And then one week from Wednesday, we start back with our regular complement of midweek services, so the three adult classes in our community institute. And then uh, in addition to that, Pioneer Club is going and uh, the full junior high and high school program. All of that will start back, including having dinner ahead of time. So no dinner this uh, Wednesday, but the following week we'll resume every week. If you register and say you're going to be here for dinner, then we know how much food to, to prepare for that. The first four Sundays of March, starting on March the 3rd through the 24th, during the second hour, it'll be our next newcomer's orientation. So if you have never been in our orientation, then you should take that. And uh, all four of those, if at all possible, I go through a booklet of material uh, telling you who our church is, where it came from, what we believe, why we do things the way we do. It's a small setting, so you have an opportunity to ask uh, questions. And it gives you information to help you make a decision about whether or not this is the place for you to become a member. So we want you to have sufficient information about who we are so that you can make an intelligent decision about that. So that'll be the first Sunday in March, second hour, and the first four Sundays of that month. The last Sunday in March is Easter, and we will have no second hour at all, just one service that day at 1030. All right. This series is called Full Service Church, and up until that first week of March. 
So going through, uh, going through February, we're going to be doing this full-service church series. Now, now, why so? One, I want you to uh, know the rationale behind how we have structured the church because this coming year, we're looking to make yet another step forward and a fairly major step forward in some plans that we have had in our 10-year plan uh, and that will affect, it will affect our structure. So I want you to know why we do things the way we do them, why we're going to modify a little bit the way we do things in this uh, coming year, and hopefully you'll see the, the uh, reasoning behind it and you'll be supportive of it. So I've talked about already in the first six pages and in the first two weeks of this that we want to be a full-service church in the sense that we offer a full complement of services, ministries, to help people grow in Christ from whatever stage they are to take the next step in their maturity. That's the idea. Full range of ministries that help people, wherever they are, get to the next step. That's one side of it. Helping people on what I call, on page three, in fact, there's a graphic called the road to maturity. So you're on that road to maturity, and as you travel that road to maturity in Christ, we want to help you at each stage that you go through, is the idea. But then as you go along that road in a fallen world, as a fallen person, you're going to run into problems. Your car's going to break down, as it were. You're going to break down because you've sinned in some way to mess things up or somebody sinned against you to mess things up or because you're in a fallen world, just bad things happen and you didn't do anything. You just got a diagnosis or you lost your job or something like that. These are all things that can derail you. And that's equivalent to being on the road and having your car engine uh, overheat or something. So you're going to have to get that taken care of. You're going to have to deal with that. And we want to help you deal with that. So in these first six pages, I've talked about two categories of discipleship then. Proactive and reactive. And I've made the point that in most of our churches, the only proactive kind of discipleship we do is in preparing people for marriage. Most churches have premarital counseling. Not all even have that. But of those that have any kind of proactive discipleship, that's really the only thing we have. We prepare people for marriage. Well, that's better than nothing. But it's been my observation over a lot of years that though marriage is, for those who get married, that's a, a pivotal point in life, to be sure, and worthy of such pre preparation, that there are other pivot points in life as well. That if people do not negotiate those well, then that can derail them. So you want to go into marriage with your eyes open, knowing what the Bible says about it, preparing for it, proactive discipleship for marriage, but you also want it for a bunch of other stages as well. And in these previous pages, I listed some of those, some of those categories for you. You know, your first baby that comes along. Depending on how that goes, <laughs> that can really mess you up. I mean, you're thrilled with this new life, but the baby's having some physical problems. The baby's not sleeping for a year. In our case, it was six years before Laney went to sleep. Just kidding. It only seemed like six years. Well, here's why it seemed like six years, because it was a couple of years for her that she really struggled. Well, then 
you know, a year after she finally gets it together, we have Annie. And then Annie struggles for a couple of years. So it did seem like, you know, five or six years. Well, you, you, have to adjust, you have to adjust to that, right? And we've got people in the collective wisdom of the body of Christ who have been through that and can help you through that proactively before it happens to prepare you for what could be coming down the road. So we want to have support for stages like that. Your child's going into junior high. Now what kinds of things are they going to face going into junior high that were different than elementary school? A bunch, right? But we've got people who have gone through that. We want to prepare you, the parent, for that, and we want to prepare the kid for that, too. That's what I mean by, by proactive. Prepare for retirement. Prepare for midlife. Um, uh, and uh, there's a few that I'm missing, but I, but I wrote them. There are 12 total that, that we have. Going to college, college and, college and career after you graduate high school. That's one where young people struggle mightily, trying to figure out where's my place in, in God's world. So proactive discipleship before it happens, preparing you. But then reactive is something happened to you, something you did is derailing you, and now you need counsel to react to that to help you get back on the road, get restored, re rehabilitated so you can move forward. And most of you know that if you don't take care of those issues that arise in people's lives, those can follow them for the rest of their life and be a weight on them that keeps them from moving forward. Full service church, full range of ministries, proactive and reactive, but it's also a double entendre in that. We want a full range of ministries, full complement of ministries, but we also want everyone as a full service church serving. So a full complement of ministries, but then a church full of people serving as well. We've emphasized that for a lot of years to good effect, thankfully, so we have a very high percentage of the people in our church serving. But in this series, I want to emphasize both of those, proactive and reactive, full complement of ministries, and then everybody serving, and especially that first piece. Now, after today, what I'm going to do is go through those 12 transitions in the normal course of life. And I'm going to show you some of what it is we want to give to people at each of those stages to help them navigate that, navigate that well. And I hope then, as I say, out of that, that you'll see the reasoning, that you'll be enthusiastic about it, and that you'll participate and encourage other people to participate. And then I'll also tell you where it is that we're going to fit that into our church's structure so that we have time to do it, people can get together uh, that are in similar kinds of circumstances to help one another uh, navigate those. So we left off on page 7. Top of page 7, post-Nicene discipleship. So I've mentioned to you, in, in, if you, if you read some church history, that you'll see this term Nicene, and it's related to uh, a a city called Nicaea, where a famous council of church leaders met in the year 325. 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea, it met primarily to talk about issues that had come up regarding what the Bible teaches about the person of Christ. Is he fully God and fully man? Uh, the Nicene Creed comes out of that, and it affirmed uh, that indeed the Bible teaches that 
Jesus Christ is fully God and, and fully human. Uh, but it was, such a, it was such a watershed event that church historians have divided early church history, the first few centuries, into pre-Nicene uh, uh, history and post-Nicene. So before 325 and after 325. So on the previous pages, we looked at how discipleship was done first in the Bible, but then in the first couple of centuries of the church after the Bible was completed. And now we want to look at after Nicaea, how this happened. Top of page 7. The groundwork laid in the pre-Nicene era was built upon in the immediate, in the immediate centuries following. The approach recommended in something called the apostolic tradition is, quote, echoed in the later 4th century Syrian apostolic constitutions, which said the candidate will be instructed for a period of three years. Whoever is zealous and demonstrates eagerness during this time is to be received, for judgment depends not on time, but on conduct. So here's an example of how discipleship was done. They took it seriously enough that somebody went through a three-year training process to be considered a, a, a disciple of of Christ. And uh, whoever is, it says, zealous and demonstrates eagerness during this time then is to be received. So you're evaluate, evaluating this person during this uh, three-year period. Many of the same ideas were refined and formalized, next paragraph, into, into a catechumenate training for those who would officially enter the community of faith. The term catechumenate derives from a New Testament word for instruction, katecheo, that's the Greek word. For instance, katecheo is used twice in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6, where it says, the one who receives instruction in the Lord should share all things with their instructor. So instruction, that word instruction is katecheo, and the instructor is the one who gives the katecheo. Such training was deemed necessary in part because as the gospel spread to primarily Gentile and pagan peoples, the church came to regard conversion to Christ as so revolutionary that it required a significant time of instruction and drilling in other spiritual activities prior to the conferring of baptism upon new believers. Let me stop there. Do you guys see what's being said there? That you're now going out into these pagan areas with the gospel. People are being converted but the baggage that they're bringing with them is serious, one. And they are coming out of families and out of, of, of uh, cities and relationships that are still pagan. And they've got to know how to live as a Christian in the midst of that. So the more that is happening, it was deemed that we're going to have to have some serious time of uh, evaluation as to whether or not this person means business about living for Christ in the midst of that kind of, a, kind of environment. That's what's being said there. The development of the catechumenate reflected this view. Harmless says shifts in both the 4th century church and the wider milieu combined to challenge and reshape the tone and temper of the inherited ritual structures, pedagogies, and moral expectations of the 3rd century. When we today speak of a Christianization of the Roman Empire, it's crucial to savor the catechumenate's role in this. The catechumenate was precisely the cutting edge where such Christianization took place, where it became personal, where it touched individuals' lives and those of their families and local communities. While some advocated for catechesis before baptism 
and others after, the necessity of, an inten of intentional instruction was widely recognized. Now, why am I giving you this? You guys may remember that I said we're going through this historical stuff, and this will be the end of it today. So if you endure for the next 28 minutes, this will be the end of it. The historical stuff. But part of the reason is, just to be perfectly blunt, is I want you to know, as I said a couple weeks ago, I didn't make this up. That one, we started with what the scriptures say in Acts chapter 2 and other passages. That's most important. But then we want to benefit from the wisdom of what others have done in the history of the church. And if they have reflected biblical values uh, and processes well, then we want to try to emulate those in our own way and in our own day. So that's uh, partly why I'm, I'm doing that. Uh, I didn't just make this up, and I think it's the kind of thing that needs to be revived in our day because discipleship is so very important that it should not be left to haphazard. It, it may happen or it may not. Jesus said that our, through the end of the age, here's what I want you to do. Make, what he said do one thing. Make disciples through the end of the age. Well, okay. And then right after that, he ascends back to heaven. And what does he give us? He gives us the church. The church is born right after that, just literally weeks after Jesus says that, the church is born, born and established. And the church is for the purpose of making these disciples. This is the community of the disciples. And we're going to grow them and mature them. So we've got to take this then seriously. But unfortunately, so many of our churches do not take it seriously enough to make it intentional. You see that second to the last paragraph on page seven, that, that just that one line or one sentence. Some advocated catechesis before baptism, some after, but the necessity of, and there's the key word, intentional instruction was widely recognized. So what we don't want to do is have discipleship become a matter of osmosis. Just show up, hang around long enough, and by osmosis you'll get the idea. That is discipleship in most of the churches that I've observed. If you ask most people in churches like ours, who grew up in churches like ours, how were you discipled? They'll describe generally some kind of osmosis approach. I came, I attended, they had stuff on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, I went to that, I caught on to what other people did, I started doing the stuff they did, stopped doing the stuff they didn't, and I just sort of caught on over time. I learned the Bible over time, I learned some of the characters and the storyline, and you do that for 20 years, you do that for 30 years, and indeed, you do that faithfully, you're going to get a lot of good things out of that. But for me, if Jesus says make disciples, and the church is the community of disciples, and our church's key verse, our church's theme verse is Colossians 1.28, that we proclaim him teaching and admonishing everyone so that we might present everyone fully mature in Christ, if that's the deal, then I don't want to leave it to osmosis. I want to have an intentional track for people to do this and for it to address every piece of life and thus the, the full service part of that. And people way before us, centuries ago, 
and smarter than me, did that. Bottom of page seven. A major representative of the post-Nicene discipleship is Augustine of Hippo. Notice how I pronounce that, Augustine. Now, you could pronounce that Augustine, and actually it's safer for you now to pronounce it Augustine than it was before Dr. Combs moved. (laughs) Dr. Combs would start twitching. If you said Augustine, and he would tell you it's Augustine, he says Augustine was an early Christian leader. Uh, St. Augustine is a city in Florida. That's what he would (laughs) I've heard him tell people that a bunch of times over here. And you just don't want to experience that, okay? Now, so I'm very careful. Every time I come across that, okay, the one's in the city in Florida, what is it? All right, it's Augustine of Hippo, okay? He required elaborate preparation for baptism, detailed ritual in the sacrament itself. Candidates extended their hands to the west, renounced the devil and his works, and then to the east they would recite their profession of faith, followed by a trine immersion in water flowing from fonts designed to represent living water accompanied by questions about each person of the Trinity to which the candidate affirmed belief, after which they were anointed with oil and prayed for with the laying on of, of hands. I mean, you see that kind of an elaborate process that Augustine had, had implemented. Trine immersion means the person was immersed three times, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The reason we only immerse once is because in Matthew 28 and verse 19, that the name in Matthew 29, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is singular. And so we don't do it three times, we do it once, because the name is singular, Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, in his, last line there, in Caridian, and that's a Greek word for his handbook, a manual on Christian living, Augustine describes piety as consisting of faith, hope, and love. And he expounds on each of these from the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the two great commandments, love God and love others, respectively, showing the interrelationship between them. Augustine regarded these three summaries as essential in cultivating faith, hope, and love in the lives of believers. So these three summaries, what three summaries? Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer, and the great two commandments. Such teaching touches humans at the levels of their heads, hearts, and hands. That is, in terms of cognition, affection, and behavior. All right, now let me stop there. Um, So you guys go to a church. Most of you are members of a church, this church, that has a mission statement that says, and we have it on page one if you've forgotten, but it says... Community Bible Church exists to help people do three things. I'm afraid to ask, does anybody know what these are? So learn about God. Love Him and others. Live for His purpose. Learn, love, live. Now look at the three things up there. Head, heart, and hands. Does that sound like that fits fairly well into learn, love, and live? Or cognition, affection, and behavior. You know, you're cognizant of, you're you're learning, you cognize, recognize. That's what cognition means. 
affection, love him and others, and then behavior. What you do, you live for his, his purpose. So again, I'm, I'm drilling home, we didn't, make this, we didn't make this up. Learn, love, and live starts with you know, the same letter, sounds cute, sounds like you might have just made it up overnight. It's not quite, not quite like that. The catechetical pattern that has marked historic catechisms was chosen not only because it was deemed ancient or traditional, it was considered to be a wise and comprehensive primer containing, as Luther put it, exactly everything that a Christian needs to know. In his shorter preface to the large catechism, Luther recalls, or he calls these three, the most necessary part of Christian instruction, embodying the ancient fathers' summing up of the doctrine, life, wisdom, and learning which constitute the Christian's conversation, conduct, and concern. You keep seeing these threes over and over again, right? Now, here's Augustine, and then centuries later, you got Luther, and they're trying to drill down to just this handful of, of things. The Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the, the two great commandments. One of the reasons that that was the case, that they really had to drill down and try to simplify even in an elaborate system, simplify it for people, was this. Think about this. How many of Augustine's disciples, his catechumens, how many of those people had a Bible? That would be zero. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we don't have the printing press until the late 1400s. So even Luther is after that, but Luther's in the 1500s. Just after that just after the invention of the, the printing press. So the people that he is seeking to disciple, they don't all have copies of the, of the Bible either. We, if we don't think about history that way, then we think everybody walked into Luther's church in Germany or in the early church and everybody was carrying their study Bible for left-handed people. It's my little joke about all the different study Bibles we have. There's the men's study Bible, the women's study Bible, the, gol the golfer's study Bible. The, I mean, just you name it, okay? But nobody was carrying a Bible. So people had to memorize stuff. People had to have mnemonics given to them, that memory aids to help them with this. You had to try to summarize. And so you see that that's what they're trying to do. This summarizes the whole of the Christian life in their, in their mind. Whether they chose correctly on that is of no concern to me because all of us do have copies of God's Word, one. And we have published material that allows us to do more than those guys were able to do. So here they have this rigorous process and it's three years and they're examining and whether or not you're going to get baptized and, and all. And yet we have more, far more resources than they ever had. First of all, we've got the Bible. And then we've got published material that we, we can use. We can publish our own material, put it in your hands every week. I can run off the copy or the stuff you've got in front of you right now. They could never do any of that. And so for me, I have said, all things being equal, a person can go from salvation to being fully established in their faith in a matter of three to five years. If you have an intentional track, all things being equal, it doesn't take 30 years of osmosis. It takes about three to five years of you going through the track that's provided 
so that you get established in truth. You know how to use the Bible. You guys know of a couple of classes like that? Master Plan for Life. Get established in doctrine. How to use the Bible. How to get the most out of your Bible. And then have environments within the structure of the church where these others, affection and behavior, can be fostered as well. And if you have that, and you have that intentionally, then in three to five years, a person can be grounded. Now that's just grounded. Now you've got to live. That's foundational. But now you've got to build on that. And the building on that is the ongoing discipleship, the road to maturity, the phases that you go through, the kinds of curveballs that are thrown at you in a fallen world. So therefore, I say middle of page 8, it would be exceedingly wise to follow the wisdom of these exemplars of the faith, people like Augustine and Luther, separated by over a millennium by including these three areas in any intentional discipleship process, which is what we've tried to do. So then there's the Reformation, Reformation discipleship. Reformation begins in 1521, as you all know, with Luther, and then follows with Calvin and others. The leaders of the Reformation prudently built on the example of their forebears by seeing the necessity for intentional ministry for head, heart, and hands. Not only did Luther's catechism include these elements, but so too Calvin's. His first catechism, called Instruction in Faith, was a short summary of what he had written to that point in his Institutes. So Calvin's magnum opus, his big body of work, his life's work, is contained in a four-volume set called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And he had started the work on that, and he had this catechism. The first one, Instruction in Faith, was a summary of what he had written up to that point in his Institutes. That catechism, like others published in Calvin's Geneva, quote, concentrated on the Lord's Prayer, Apostles' Creed, and the Law, the Ten Commandments. And you saw that back with uh, Augustine as, as well. In 1541, he published the Geneva Catechism, which covers the knowledge of God, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. In the Geneva Catechism, he made explicit use of the Apostles' Creed, and notably, he dealt with it before the law, reversing the way Luther did. That reflects the their respective views on the function of the law. Luther seeing it as preparatory for the gospel. Calvin agreeing that the law serves as our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, but he saw it as having a sanctifying role after conversion. As commonly, It's commonly called the third use of the law. All right, that's a mouthful just for a second. So what's being said there is, Luther says, look, the, the law doesn't play a role in your life after you become a Christian. But the law is helpful because of its demands and the fact that none of us meet those demands. It shows us our sin and therefore our need of Christ. That's what's being said there. Calvin says, I agree with all that. But he says, I also think that the law is helpful as a sanctifying instrument after you become, after you become a Christian. Uh, and I would, since you ask what I think about this, uh, my, my understanding is that the law is done, the law, the Mosaic law is done for the Christian. Now, all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is useful. So obviously, the Old Testament, including the Mosaic law, teaches us things about the character of God. And the character of God never changes. And so that's applicable to us, and so we can see that. I did a series on the Ten Commandments 
doing that very kind of, kind of thing, making application of it. But we're no longer under the Mosaic law. And so I would disagree uh, with, in fear and trembling with Calvin a bit on, on that, that the law is applicable to us today. It's not applicable to us today. However, it doesn't mean we are lawless or to use the fancy term, antinomian. That means no law or against law. We are not that. Why? Because the New Testament has law. The New Testament has rules. The New Testament has commands. We are under what Galatians chapter 6, Paul called the law of Christ. And so, but that was their kind of intramural disagreement. The Heidelberg Catechism from 1563, commissioned in an effort to unify Lutheran and Reformed churches, made use of the law in both ways. So, Ursinus, who was the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, said, it exists of three parts. The first treats the misery of man, the second his deliverance from it, and the third of gratitude. The Decalogue, that would be the Ten Commandments, belongs to the first, teaching you about your, your misery, in as far as it's a mirror through which we're brought to see ourselves, and thus led to a knowledge of our sins and misery. And the third part, in as far as it is the rule of true thankfulness and of a Christian life. So he's saying, yeah, it does lead you to Christ because it shows you're a sinner, but it also, you try, you try to keep the law out of, out of gratitude. That's during the Rest Reformation, and then there's post-Reformation discipleship. In the years following the Reformation, emphasis on intentional catechesis has ebbed and flowed. A high watermark was achieved in the ministry of Puritan pastor Richard Baxter. He used the Westminster Shorter Catechism in instructing entire families and individuals one by one, adding to it teaching from the Apostles' Creed or the Ten Commandments. Unfortunately, his work was not carried on by his successors at the town in which he ministered, Kidderminster, though his efforts had effect both near and far. Nearly a century after his ministry ended, George Whitfield visited Kidderminster, and he noted the beneficial legacy of his work. And his book, The Reformed Pastor, influenced his German contemporary, Philip Spener, Cotton Mather, and the ministers in New England, and, in fact, Charles Spurgeon. All right, let me stop there. So here's Richard Baxter. He's a pastor in this town in England, Kidderminster. And he, um, and, and he met one-on-one -on -one with people to go through this stuff. So he is a guy who writes this book, The Reformed Pastor, and he tells you as a pastor, here's the kind of visitation program you should have. And I read that when I was in seminary, and I thought to myself, I think the Lord's calling me to something else. It's very rigorous, very rigorous. And it was at a different time. It was at a time where, again, you don't have the kinds of tools that we have today. You don't have the kind of, certainly the digital tools that we, that we have today. And so we can accomplish a lot of that, a lot of what he needed to do face-to-face. -face. We don't always have to do face-to-face -face through visitation. But he was a very devoted pastor, and he produced very devoted disciples. And he is an example then to all of us in, in that regard. And it's saying, we're saying here that his work had far-reaching effects. George Whitfield, 
George Whitfield, came to America, was an evangelist, was a wildly gospel successful evangelist who helped to spark what's known as the first great awakening in America in the 1740s, the 1740s. And he, he preached to crowds of thousands without any amplification. He had a very strong voice. He had a very orthodox uh, doctrine and salvation message, and many, many, many hundreds of people came to Christ uh, through, his, through his ministry. One of the people who heard him preach, George Whitfield, uh, was a young printer in Philadelphia named Benjamin Franklin. And Franklin later wrote about George Whitfield and his voice and his power and his, and his, his doctrine and uh, how effective it, it was. Bottom of page 9, the tide receded with the arrival of pietism in the late 17th century. So that's the late 1600s. Pietism's founders, Spainer, Spainer who was mentioned earlier, and August Franck in Germany, along with pietistic leaders in other countries, reacted to what had come to be perceived as spiritual lethargy in the state churches where, quote, signs of life were obscured by the formalism and insincerity of church leaders. Let me stop here. So some of you have grown up in liturgical churches. By liturgical, I mean liturgy is worship. But there's such an emphasis on the order of the liturgy and the elements of the liturgy that as you grow up, you go, it, it becomes going through the motions of the liturgy. So you've seen emphasized here by more than one person the Lord's Prayer, for example. In liturgical churches, to this day, most often, part of the liturgy every Sunday is for you to recite the, the Lord's Prayer. Well, the, you know, the more you do that, my guess is most of you have experienced this if you were in that kind of church, that then it's, a, it's great to recite the Lord's Prayer, nothing wrong with that. But if you do that week after week after week, and you do the same kinds of things week after week after week, saying the same stuff, then it becomes very rote, mechanical. And that's what you've experienced, and that's what happened here. That's what the pietists were saying. The pietists were saying that there was the spiritual lethargy as it just became formalism. Signs of life were obscured by the formalism and insincerity of the leaders. Just, you know, I mean, think about being the guy who's leading that. Okay, it's time for us to do what we do every week. Say the, say the same thing every, every week. So church historian Mark Knoll observes, top of page 10, Spainer promoted a major reform in the practical life of the churches. A sermon in 1669 mentioned the possibility of laymen meeting together, setting aside glasses, cards, or dice, and encouraging each other in the Christian faith. Now, you see what he's saying there? Maybe we can get guys to get together and talk about Jesus rather than drinking, playing cards, and rolling dice. That's what he's saying. So if you guys could not watch the lions, let's say, I mean, this would be, I'm just saying that's what he would be saying, okay? And encouraging each other in the Christian faith. The next year, Spainer 
himself instituted this collegia pietatis, pious assembly, to meet on Wednesdays and Sundays to pray, discuss the previous week's sermon, and apply passages from Scripture and devotional writings to individual hearts. Now, can you guys see what starts to come forward in our day then? Wednesday nights? <coughs> Sundays, even Sunday nights? People getting it. Now, there's nothing in the Bible about Wednesday nights. There's nothing in the Bible about Sunday nights. But people saw the need, if we, if we want to grow further, we need to be together to discuss these matters and how they apply to our lives. I mean, that's really what he's doing here. Rather than just going, going through the motions. Once again, we see that knowledge is not an end in itself, but rather cognition, knowledge, affection, and behavior are to go together in the development of disciples. And yet the good motivations of the pietists covered over problematic seeds that would sprout later. The godliness of the individual rather than the glory of God in the church became the primary focus of interest. interest. So pietism is defined as a variety of Christianity that emphasizes personal experience, which at its worst is defined as it can lead to inordinate subjectivism and emotionalism. It can discourage careful scholarship. While confessionalism retained a place in some expressions of Protestantism, strains of pietism winded their way through wider and deeper, uh, their way wider and deeper into forms of evangelical church life that have considerable impact today. All right, stop there. So what's being said is, these guys did a good thing. They made a, they made a, a change that was necessary. But then having made that change and so focused on application in the Christian life, they started to forget about the doctrine upon which that Christian life is based. You see how messed up we are as human beings? I mean, we go in one direction doing something good, but we go so far in that direction that we forget something else. And we all do that. I, I, am, pr I am very prone to that. Let me give you the exam an example of how I'm prone to that. Uh, for many years at our parent church, Believe it or not, I led the singing. That meant I waved my arm to keep time for people. I led the singing. And one of my responsibilities at the end of the pastor's sermon was to pick the closing song that we would go to in the hymnal to close the service. And I would listen to the message, and based upon the theme of the message, I would pick an appropriate song in the, in the hymnal. And often his sermon would be gospel-oriented and was a prime opportunity to sing a song of invitation for people to trust Christ. So I would pick that kind of song. There was one invitation song in the entire hymn book over all of those years that I never chose. Never. Not one time did we sing Just As I Am without one plea. Not, now, you're laughing because many of you know that song. And when you were growing up, every week at the end of the sermon, you sang just as I am, and they invited people to walk the aisle, and then the pastor would say, let's just play that one more time, every head bowed, every eye closed, and the organist would play softly, and people would start weeping, and then we'd get more people to come, and pastors were very good at, you know, how to do this, um, and get more people to, to come forward. And so it became somewhat manipulative sometimes, honestly. Our pastor didn't do that. But I just had seen so much of that, that that was just ingrained in me. And so I go to the other extreme, and we never sing just as I am. And the truth of the matter is, it's actually a very good song. 
It's got great, great meaning to it. So we tend to do this swing from one thing to the other. Bottom of page 10, those strains have had both positive and negative effects. And I read this last week and we'll be done though. Uh, Philip Spainer's godson and August Franck student, Nicholas von Zindendorf, created his own kind of collegia pietatis in Germany for Moravian refugees. Their zeal resulted in these two healthy contributions. They stimulated eventual mission efforts uh, of, in other denominations and also prioritized congregational singing and gathered worship. And they were responsible from a human standpoint for seeing John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, come to Christ. But with Mes Me Wesley, you had a major theological shift that would have profound and ultimately negative effects on discipleship. In particular, as I read last week, Dr. Combs says, John Wesley invented the doctrine of a second sanctifying work of grace. His view of sanctification has been transmitted to our day through the influence of important individuals and movements, Charles Finney, Asa Mahon, Phoebe Palmer, Higher Life Movement, Keswick, or Victorious Life Movement. The second work of grace is variously designated as baptism of the Holy Spirit, filling with the Spirit, act of dedication, crisis experience, second blessing, and so on. For our purposes, it's not necessary to review the particulars of these, only to note that what they all have in common is that if, if they occur at all, they are after conversion. So one's growth in holiness, according to that view, depends on a spiritual experience in addition to regeneration or salvation. And to that, all I say is, nah, that's not true. When you're regenerated, you're a child of God, you become a follower, a disciple of Jesus, and now you are born a disciple, and now you must be matured as a disciple. I have a book on my shelf that's titled, Disciples Are Born, Not Made. That's not quite right. Here's, here's what it should be. Disciples are born, again, and then matured. And that's what we're trying to do here. All right, in the remaining weeks of this series, I'll show you some of the things that we're going to try to do at those transition phases and where in our structure we're going to try to do them, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this session and the opportunity to review how you have worked in and through others who have sought to obey you in the most important issue of making disciples through your church. And so we thank you for their example and how we can learn from it and seek to implement it in our day and in our setting. Lord, we ask you to grant us wisdom as we seek to do this. This is what your church is about, making fully mature disciples. We want to do it efficiently. We want to do it effectively. We want to do it in a way that is helpful to your people, that grows your people, and most of all is pleasing to you. So grant us wisdom as we do these things. Go with us this week as we live as your disciples in the areas that you've assigned to us. We ask you to grant us safety. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.